If you have your Bibles, please go with me to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Rusty must have known what I was preaching on, um, but he planned that song. Um, he did know what we were preaching on, but did not realize the last line of that song, uh, sa- or the, one of the last lines says, uh, I celebrate the day that you were born to die. And, um, you know, our typical mode of operation around here is to preach through books of the Bible. Um, but for holidays, particularly like Christmas, uh, I like to kind of take a break for a few moments and on preach on maybe something that's more in the season of Christmas. But as I was praying through this, I really just felt led that we needed to continue on in Luke. Because I think oftentimes when we come to Christmas... Uh, we have a, a very kind of narrowed perspective of what's going on at Christmas. Um, if there's any time of year that we think of Christmas, or think of Christ, rather, it's this time of year. Um, the world thinks of some little dude born in a manger. And if there's any time that even we as Christians in our whatever excuse we might have, if there's any time in our lives that we begin to really think about Christ, it's at Christmas. And when it comes to thinking of Christ, even at this time, we all have different perceptions. And, and I think that kind of that perception is oftentimes a very narrowed perception. Oftentimes our perception of this baby born in a manger was that Christ came to unite all people. Right? I mean, that's, that's at least what I grew up thinking. He came to unite all people. Christ came as a man to bring peace, right? Peace on earth and goodwill to all men, right? Is, isn't that what the song says? Peace on earth, goodwill to all men. It's not what the Bible says. Uh, the translation there actually says, peace on earth and goodwill to whom God pleases. Uh, is actually a better translation there. We often think that Christ, even today, functions in the same way, that He came to unite all people. He came to bring peace. Many of us have learned, I think, a narrow picture of our Savior, even beyond Christmas. You know, one that says in Christianity, can't we just all get along? Right? Why do we have to have so many different denominations? Anybody ever asked that question? Why are there so many different denominations? Why can't we just all get along? We believe in the same God, right? Some of us even think maybe that division is sinful. Maybe so. I mean, Jesus really came to bring peace and unity, didn't He? Is that what He did? This year, as we enter into Christmas and the season of Christmas, I... I want us to view the Advent in light of the ending event in Christ's life. So as we celebrate the coming of someone grand, of someone marvelous, of someone gracious and kind, I want us to view and think of 
Christmas, and when we see that baby in a manger, we need to think, I want to encourage us to think with, why did he come? What was the purpose? Was it just to live this life? Was it just to be a good teacher? Because if it was all of that, then who cares about Christmas? But if he came for a purpose, and the purpose that I, I believe is defined in Scripture, then this time of year that we celebrate matters. Matter of fact, it matters so much, it affects and our eternity depends on it. So I want us to look at this text today and see that this baby in a manger came with a purpose. And I'm not, we're not going to read through the Christmas story. We may do that in the next couple weeks. But we're going to continue on in Luke chapter 20. And I want to encourage us, when we think about the purpose that this baby came, that we must not define that purpose by what we hope Jesus came to be. I think that's the danger. We, we kind of conjure up in our minds what we think Christ came to be or who He came to be or who He is or how He functions in, in, in such a way that it kind of fits our own desires, our own plans, our own agenda even. Which is just subject to our sinfulness. But instead, look objectively at God's Word and see why did this baby come? What was the purpose? Because what's going to happen as we finish out Luke here is we're going to look at the end of Christ's life. We're in the last week of Christ's life. We are 33 years beyond the birth of Christ. And we're going to see why did He come. And not the whole picture of why He came, but at least the climax of why He came. We must let the whole Word of God define the purpose for which Christ came, not just what we want it to be. See, many of us want this peaceful, uniting, love-everybody Christ. And I think we're going to see today and over the next few weeks that Christ came for probably a little bit of a different purpose than maybe what we've thought. I want to encourage you that Christ today and over these next few weeks, that Christ came to divide. Christ came to destroy. Christ came to die. And then ultimately, Christ came to deliver. This is a different picture than we think, even, uh, even as we were singing it, away in a manger. No sweet, no, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, that cute little song. And there's nothing wrong with that song, but like for many of us, that's our perception of Christ during this time. Look at that cute little baby. Isn't he sweet? I think we'll see today that that baby came with a purpose. Yes, that baby in the manger was sweet. Um, but today we're going to begin with the fact that I think we see in this text that Christ was divisive. He divided. He split things apart. Now, as Rusty preached on last week, Luke 19, the conflict in Christ's life has really begun to, to, to rise very quickly. And, and today, and as we go, the, it's just going to continue to build. And so Christ has spent lots of time already in a very kind of, yeah, I mean, yeah, the Pharisees were trying a couple things here and there, but... but 
It wasn't until really this, this last point here that we get in Luke that he, the, kind of the, the tension begins to rise very, very quickly. The conflict begins to come. And what we're going to read today probably took place roughly on Tuesday of the week of Christ's death. So with that said, the first thing I think we see that Christ divided over was authority. Christ divided over authority. Let's begin with Luke chapter 20, verse 1. We'll read through verse 8. He says, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I want to pray for us. Father, pray as we work through your word this morning um, that it would infiltrate our hearts, that it would divide even the righteousness and the sinfulness that is in our own hearts. Um, and Father, that it, would, that it would slice through it like you've promised that your word does and can do. And Father, I just ask that, uh, that you would clear our minds to hear you clearly today. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So the tension is beginning to rise. The Pharisees are coming to Christ Kind of turning up the heat, the, the dial, like, like we didn't do in here this morning. Uh, I'm just kidding. The, some of the heaters are not working so well. Uh, so if you have your jackets on, that's why it's cool. But the Pharisees are beginning to turn up the heat towards Christ. The religious leaders did not like what was going on. I mean, Jesus was beginning to steal, had been stealing, at, uh, uh, probably more accurately, had been stealing their, their popularity their influence, and I don't mean popularity as in, as in a high school popularity, but popularity as in the people are following us, and in following us, we get to do essentially whatever we want to do. They had built this kingdom around that fit their own sinful and fleshly desires, and Jesus was ruining that kingdom that they had built. I mean, this kingdom was built on man. It was on, built on man's conveniences, man's righteousness, Man's health, man's wealth, man's prosperity. It was built on that. It was built on if, if you are prospering, well, that means that God has blessed you, that God is showing favor to you. Among many other things, it was their righteousness. I'm able to do this by what I'm able to be in right relationship with God based upon what I'm doing, the laws that I have set up. And so they built this kingdom that fit a lifestyle in which they could live outwardly in such a way that they felt earned their way into God, but then inwardly be as far from
from God as anyone else. And the religious leaders decided at this point to ask Jesus a question. They asked Jesus the question, where does your authority come from? Now this is key. I mean, this is, this is very foundational for Christ. Where does your authority come from? They were saying like, your authority to heal, your authority to teach. Jesus had just cleansed the temple. Where does your authority to do that come from? See, what happens, the Pharisees knew something very, very careful here. They said that they knew that if Jesus claimed that it was from God, that his authority was from God, then the Roman authorities would do something about Christ. Because what would happen is now we're going to have this big religious movement. And, and see, the Roman government knew that like, there's, this, there's this healthy balance of religion and government. But they knew that if Christ began to do this, like began to rise in popularity, then there could be a big split and a big trouble inside of the kingdom. And so I think the Pharisees knew that if Christ said that his power was from God, his authority was from God, then people would even more so begin to follow him. And then the government would see, oh no, then we're going to have a fight on our hands. This is going to be trouble. So what would happen, I think most likely, is the Roman authorities would then have seized Christ. I think the Pharisees knew this. But the Pharisees also knew that if Jesus claimed that his authority wasn't from God, then the people would know that he was a fake. People would say, you're not real. Then the Jews would have Jesus right where they want him. So they're thinking, either way we go, Jesus is caught. If he says this, the Romans are going to get him. If he says this, the people are going to get him. Either way, the threat of Jesus would be gone and their kingdom would be safe. But then Jesus responds with a question. He says, tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from man? So was it done on the authority of God or was it done from the authority of man? You see, Jesus knew at this point that if the Pharisees said that it was from man then that the people would rise against them. Why? Because John the Baptist says in the text, John the Baptist was still very popular with the people. And the people believed that he was a prophet from God. So if they said, no, it wasn't from God, then the people would seize them. But if they said that it was from God, then they would have to accept John's claims about Christ. You see, Jesus, in asking this, what happens is Jesus didn't, I think we're tempted here at this point to say, well, Jesus just came up with like a diversion here. Here's a question that can kind of get the crowd off of, the focus off of me. And I think what Christ did was very significant. What Christ did here was ask a question that had the same answer to it as the answer to the question that they had asked him. And so they came with a trap to say, Christ we're going to trap you on this. We've got you. And Jesus says, let me ask you a question. And just takes that trap, turns it around, and in the back of his mind says, no, I got you. You're the ones that are trapped. Jesus knew that the answer to their question would expose the Pharisees. The people knew. The Pharisees knew what Christ was asking. He was asking a question that had the same answer to it as their question. So what happens is the religious leaders, what do they do? They step aside to discuss. They step aside to discuss. All they cared about, that's what the text tells us, all they cared about was their kingdom 
And the response of the people was a crucial step or a crucial part to that kingdom. However the people would respond would affect the Pharisees and their agenda, their plan. So they're, they're, they're deliberating right here. They're going, which, which is it going to be? Which, how will this answer will affect the people? And how, how does this answer, how will it affect the people? And so, like a famous politician, they say, we have no comment. We're not going to answer you. I have no comment. Now, teachers end up caught in their own trap. The teachers realized that they were the ones in danger with the crowds. And that Jesus, but, but, but understand guys, Jesus will eventually answer their question. But for now, he's going to teach them a lesson. I want to encourage us as we begin to work, as we continue to work through this text, that we don't, I'm going to preach it in sections, but I want us to understand this is, this is the same context. So Christ is going to come back around to their question, but he's going to get there a little bit later. And so for now, he's going to teach them a lesson. But before we move on to that lesson, the attempt by the Pharisees to catch Jesus simply provided the opportunity for Christ to divide those who recognize God's authority and the, from those who don't recognize God's authority. And Christ at this point, what's going on in this text is Christ is saying there is an authority here and it's God. There are people that follow that. Then there are people who follow any other authority on this earth. And the Pharisees clearly, clearly stand on their own authority. And we'll see this as we continue on in the text. Now, I want to talk about this authority for just a few moments, but I want to give you an example of a religious leader today who Jesus would call a, te- a false teacher, a heretic, a Pharisee. The same thing that he is challenging at this very moment. Some of you know who the teacher is whose name's Creflo Dollars. Anybody familiar with, with his name? Creflo Dollar says this, God uses words to create what he wants to exist. That's true, I agree. He says Christians have the same ability. For example, when there's lack in your life, call forth abundance to replace it. Say what you believe is true according to the word. So he's saying we have the authority to simply say some words, and if we believe it enough to be true, then it'll come true. And later on in other writings of his, he would, he would say God is essentially obligated to do that. If we say something and believe it by faith, it has to happen. Uh, whose authority are we standing on there? He's a standing, Creflo Dollar would encourage us to stand essentially on our own authority. We're claiming something based upon our authority. Let me give you another example of a, another religious leader that I think Christ would look at today and call a false teacher, heretic, Pharisee, Joel Osteen. He says this, There is a miracle in your mouth. If you want to change your world, start by changing your words. If you learn how to speak the right words and keep the right attitude, God will turn that situation around. Wow. So all we have to do is change our words and God will turn our situation around. I think Dollar and Osteen here 
would beckon us to stand on our own authority and speak something into existence. Name it. Claim it. It's ours. You see, the Pharisees were standing upon their own authority. This was their kingdom, and Jesus was beginning to shine a light on the falsehood of their authority. He was beginning to show the people, look, they don't stand on the authority of God. They stand on their own authority, their own rules and regulations, their own conceptions. Now, I encourage you guys because, and the reason I quote even some of these people and list them by name is we live in a dangerous culture. And just because someone says part of the truth doesn't mean that it's okay then for them to say whatever else they want to say. It doesn't mean that they don't need to be shut up. Now, ultimately, all of us are going, are going to say things that are incorrect. We're going to say things that are wrong. But the point is, are we teaching people the gospel, or are we teaching them false gospels? And a gospel that says you can have whatever you want as long as you speak it correctly is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not what the baby in the manger came to die for. He came to die for a gospel that says your life is dependent on God and it's about God's will, not yours. You see, the Pharisees were standing on their own authority. It was their kingdom. Jesus was standing in front of the Pharisees saying, and I think he would say to these men I've listed today and even to us, we have to be careful about what we say and he would say to the Pharisees and, and Osteen and Dollar, you're a false teacher. You're a liar. You're a Pharisee. You've created a world in which you can live the way you want to on the outside. You can get what you want on the outside. But never experience true gospel transformation on the inside. Where all those silly materialistic requests that you would make on the outside, whether health, wealth, prosperity, those would all be deferred to the gospel transforming work in your life. But, let me say this. Maybe you don't, maybe you don't subscribe to what they're saying and saying that we, I mean, I, I would hope that we're not walking around changing words just so that we can get what we want. But still, I think there's probably many ways in which we try to stand on our own authority. Let me give you some examples. Maybe sometimes we simply don't want to do what the Bible says. Anybody else struggle with that? I do. There's sometimes where I just simply, the Bible says it, and I just simply don't want to do it. Let me give you a couple examples. Maybe I'm bitter, but I won't do anything about seeking reconciliation. You're standing on your own authority, not on the Word of God. You're saying whatever is leading me to not seek reconciliation is more valuable and authoritative in my life than the Word of God. God says I should seek reconciliation, but my heart, for whatever reason it is, whether it's convenience or it's bitterness or broken, whatever it is, is more valuable to me, is more my authority than the Word of God. Maybe 
Sometimes we simply don't want to obey the leaders that God has put around us. We justify our sin and disobedience by criticizing. And I'm not just speaking of church leaders, right? But even our lost, unchurched leaders around us. God has placed them in authority over us. And our our responsibility is to submit to their authority as it's an extension of God's authority, only to the point at which we don't have to break God's authority to obey them. So government authority over us, we are to submit to that willfully, gladly, as it's an extension of God's authority. But we only do that to the point at which we have to begin breaking our commitment and the leadership of God and His authority in our lives. Sometimes our, our authority appeal, or where we appeal to authority is much more subtle. Maybe we think, I can influence God by my righteousness. Well, what do you mean? How about this? Well, maybe God will answer my prayer here if I just, if I just live a good enough life for the next week. Anybody else ever done that, ever thought that? Well, if I just don't have evil thoughts for the next hour, maybe God will answer this prayer for me, right? I mean, I've thought those thoughts. I hope I'm not the only one in the room. Well, I mean, I hope I'm the only one in the room, but for my selfishness, I don't want to be the only one in the room. <sighs> maybe, you know, you, you're, you're asking that prayer, God, please answer this, please answer this, please take care of this, please do this, and, and then you begin to think, okay, well, if I just... Right, I, can't, I can't think of that evil thing over there. I can't do that because then God may not answer my question or my prayer request. We think somehow we can appeal to our authority to then influence God. Or maybe some of us struggle with this, but I have control over my situation and I have no need for God's control. So my question is, Chris, are you Christians, are you living on your authority, or are you living on Christ's authority? And Christ here is clearly drawing a dividing line between Christ's authority and any other authority. And any other authority usually comes down to our authority. I'm appealing to my authority versus to Christ's authority. So Christ divided over authority. The second thing that we see is Christ divided over obedience. Christ divided over obedience. Let's read John chapter tw- or sorry, Luke chapter 20, verse 9 through 19. It says, and he, and he began to tell the people this parable. So remember, this is the same context. This is Christ still, he just said this, he said, I'm not going to answer your question, and he continues on now with the Pharisees in the exact same context, just like we're moving on from point A to point B, Jesus is going on from the first part of the story, now to the second part of the same story, same chapter. Here we go, verse 9, and he began to tell the people this parable, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. 
This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. These are very strong words from our Savior. He is looking. He doesn't need to call the Pharisees out by name. He's looking right at them. And this is a very indicting parable that Christ tells. I encourage you to look at this later, but this is reminiscent of the parable of the vineyard in Isaiah 5. The people would have been very familiar with this parable, or this, this parable of the vineyard back in Isaiah 5. But here the Pharisees and the religious leaders knew that Jesus has spoken the parable against them. That's why they get to the end and say, surely not. And Jesus looks directly at them. Because they knew that Jesus had said, this is you. He was implying this from the context, this is you. You see, what's going on in the story is that the tenants, the ones who had now basically taken up his place in the vineyard, that they owed the owner a portion of the produce. Like they owed, kind of, kind of like, in, like, like in tithing and, and giving back. Like we, we owe God a portion. Like we should give God a portion of that. This is obedience. There was an obedient factor in this thing in this story or this parable in which the tenants did not want to do and instead of giving back they eventually killed even the son of the owner it says that they beat the servants and cast them out and here jesus is saying the pharisees were the dreadfully sinful tenants and the pharisees knew it and the fact is is that the pharisees owed god their lives but instead, all they gave God was their prideful self-righteousness. I've got this. I've got this on my own. God, I don't need you. But they owed God everything. So the Pharisees respond in the story, Surely not. This cannot be us, and that cannot be what is happening. But then Jesus looks directly at them. And what happened? What happens? What does Christ do? I love this. I love watching how Christ responds to adversity and to these trials and division he quotes the word of god he goes back to the word of god he at this point he doesn't even appeal like he doesn't he doesn't just come up with something cool he, he appeals to the authority of the word of god and, and i think just to make us kind of a side point here i think most of us are comfortable with false teaching around us because we have no clue what the word of god says and or we don't actually love what the Word of God says. 
So we're okay with it because we don't know. Jesus knew. And he knew it and loved it. And so therefore convicted by it. It was a convictional issue to Christ. It wasn't just, oh, you're, you're sharing a couple bad ideas. No, you're blaspheming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And guys, this goes on around us all the time. And Christ here looks at them and quotes the word of God. They, they know that Jesus is saying this about them. Jesus knows and loves the word of God. And he quotes from Psalm 118. You can look that up later. And ultimately, Jesus, what he's doing is presenting himself as this cornerstone that they, as the builders, are rejecting. The parable is suggesting, I think, so kind of the step back from that side point, I think the parable is suggesting that disobedience, so the disobedience that we see of the tenants of not doing what they're supposed to do and giving back a portion, that the disobedience encourages the blindness that ultimately rejects the owner's son. See, the attendants disobey God by not giving back a portion of what God had given them, the vineyard. Then when he sends his son, they reject even the owner's son. Sounds kind of like another story, right? I mean, the horrifying climax in Jesus' story is that they kill the son. Why would the people kill him? So that the inheritance might be theirs. So that they might keep the kingdom of which they'd built. So they didn't have to give any of their kingdom up. Now I don't think this is blindness. Like I don't think the blindness that he's talking about here in the passage is a blindness to not know who Jesus is. I think it's a blindness in recognizing the Father's rightful claim through the Son. So the father of the son that was sent has a rightful claim over a portion of their production in the vineyards. So it wasn't a blind. They saw, they recognized him as the son, right? I mean, what do they say there in the text? This is the son. Let us kill him that we might have the inheritance. They knew who the son was. They weren't blind to who the son was. But they were blind to the father's rightful claim over everything that was theirs. The same thing was going on with the Pharisees. They knew who Jesus was. I'm convinced they knew He was the Son of God. But they were blind to the rightful claim that the Son of God had over their lives. You see, many of us know Jesus. We're not blind to who He is. But many of us don't recognize God's rightful claim on everything through this Christ. We don't recognize His claim on our finances, His claim on our house, His claim on our kids, His claim on our cars, His claim on our health, His claim on our workplaces, His claim on the very breath that just left your mouth. He owns it all. It's all His. And my question, I think the question for us to ask today is, or one of the many questions is, will you continue to kill the son so that you might receive it all for yourself? Will we continue to kill the son of God in our hearts so that we might have it all to ourselves? Say, what do you mean by kill? 
I mean by when we recognize he has claim over it all, we justify it in such a way so that we can spend it and use it and possess it in whatever way we want to so that we might build up our kingdom instead of living in his. How many times do we, do you, kill the Son of Man in our own hearts so that we can have the evil desires that are rooted within? He has claim over it all. We don't own, you don't own that house. I don't care whose title, whose name's on the title. He owns that house. Those kids, I don't care whose DNA it is. God owns those kids. No matter whose name is on that paycheck at the end of the week, he's the one that gave you breath to earn that very paycheck. So, back to the story. Now, after this, he tells them that after the son is killed, that the father will come in judgment. I mean, understand, I mean, Jesus is looking right at him. Saying, you're rejecting the Son, and the Father will come in judgment over you. They, ha- they had to hate this story, this story. I mean, think of what Jesus is saying to them. Now, the irony, the irony of the story is that they ran off to fulfill the very story that they hated. And that's the irony, I think, even in our own lives, is we know the glory and grace that awaits us in the gospel, but then we run off to justify the very sinful desires that put Christ on the cross in the first place. They ran off. It says in verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable about them, but they feared the people. They feared the people. Guys, Jesus just said that the judgment of the Father is coming. And then they run off to do exactly what Jesus had just said. Because why? Because they feared the people more than they feared God himself. If you're not a Christian, I wonder how long you will continue to reject God's rightful claim on your life. And the gospel is this. We were made in the image of God, made to have relationships with each other, made to have a relationship with God. And we chose to dismiss God as our rightful king. We want to be king. We want to be ruler. We want to be lord of our own lives. We want things to go the way we want them to go. And this is sin. This separates us from God. But because of His grace, like I read earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, because He is rich in mercy, because of His grace and His mercy, He sent His Son, that's what we celebrate this time of year, to pay the price for that sin. And then we are called to repent of our sin and stand under God as our rightful King. And this is the message of Christmas, that He comes for a purpose. The small child in a manger would one day divide those who would rightfully obey God from those who will seek to obey themselves. So think of it as a wedge. If you ever split wood and you put the, you kind of have to use like a, 
what do they call that, a, a wedge, and then you hammer that in if it's a real big piece of wood, you know what I'm saying? And it just, you just keep slowly driving that wedge in, and eventually the wood splits. And that's what's going on with Christ. He's driving that wedge in, saying, these are the people who are going to obey the king, our heavenly king, and these are the people that are going to obey everyone and anything else. So far we've seen this child in a manger would one day divide over the authority and now over those who will be obedient to ourselves or to God. But this isn't the end of the chapter. He goes on. The next thing I think Jesus divides over is agendas, plans, if you will. He divides over agendas. Jesus divided over agendas. Let's start in verse 20 through Verse 26. It says, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. It is lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar, or sorry, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Again, these are religious leaders. I just love watching Christ, how he handles them here. But here we have spies sent by the Pharisees saying, if Jesus, here's the deal. If Jesus was to say, pay taxes, then the Jews would seize him. They would see him as being soft towards the Romans, as not really being for the Jews, but being for the Romans instead. But if Jesus was to say, don't pay taxes, then the Romans would seize him, because now he's seen as a rebel. He's not faithful to the Roman government. So they, again, we're trying to, 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 to get Christ and catch Christ here. Jesus' response, he said to them, verse 25, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus, at this point, undermines the idea that he had come to set up a worldly kingdom. That's what they were expecting, was Christ to come overthrow the Roman government. But at this point, he also doesn't deny that he's the Messiah either. So he doesn't, he answers a question, but he doesn't answer it the way they want him to. You see, Jesus didn't come to establish his earthly kingdom this time, but, but he will in the next time. And I think what was happening here is that the Pharisees wanted ultimately... Jesus to come and overthrow the government so that they could have their kingdom. The issue was the timing of Christ's kingdom. They didn't want the timing of Christ's kingdom. They didn't want it to come a thousand years down the road. They wanted Christ's kingdom to come now. But see, they thought in that kingdom that they were going to be rulers in that kingdom. That it would just continue and enable them to continue their agenda and their plan they didn't want Jesus to reign as king. They wanted the Romans to be overthrown so that they could reign as kings. 
They wanted Jesus to accomplish their agenda, not his. And so I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we want Jesus only so that we can accomplish our own agendas? Do you want Jesus just so you can have good health in order to keep that paycheck rolling in? I mean, think about that. Do we just reach out to Christ because, we, oh, I can't get sick because I've, I've got to go to work. So Jesus, I need you to help me. Or is it, God, I submit to you. And it's okay. I'm not saying it's wrong to ask Christ for good health so that you can provide for your family. That's not my point. The point is, are we, do we just want Jesus so that we can accomplish what we want to accomplish? Do you want Jesus just so that you can have joy in place of depression? Now, I understand we get joy as we live in a relationship with God, but do you just want Jesus for the benefits? Or do we want Jesus because He's Jesus? Do you want Jesus just so that you can have well-behaved kids or a household that looks tidy? Jesus' division over the timing of His kingdom ultimately, I think, reveals the true desires of the Pharisees' hearts, their desire for Jesus to accomplish what was needed in order for their agenda to be accomplished. And I think we have to ask that very serious question, are we wanting Christ just so it fits our agenda? So we can accomplish what we want to. It'll make this world better so that I can enjoy it more if Jesus would just come do His thing. Or do you want Jesus to come do his thing so that he would be honored and glorified among all men and women? Why do you want him to come? Next, Jesus divides over hope. Jesus divides over hope. So how's this so far for the little peaceful baby in a manger, right? Away in a manger, no, it's like, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. I agree. I'm sure he was cute at that point. But he came with a purpose. And we're seeing that purpose here. The Pharisees. All right, so chapter 20, verse 27 through 40. They came to him, some Sadducees. They came to him, some sa- There came to him, some Sadducees. There we go. Those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took her. And likewise, and all seven left no children and died. I mean, what a crazy story. But anyways, afterward, I mean, that's like that woman's got some bad luck, right? Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had had her as wife. Good question. And Jesus said to them, Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given to marriage. Now, have you ever wondered whether there was going to be marriage in heaven? You're going to be married to Christ. There will be no marriage. So just so you know, Christ says it right here. Um, But that's another sermon for another time. 
our marriage here is a tangible display of the marriage between Christ and His church. And when that marriage between Christ and His church is visible for all to see, there'll be no need for marriage any longer. Verse 36. So they're not going to be given into marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But the dead, but that the dead are raised. Even Moses, get this, even Moses, this is, this is significant. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Wow. I mean, they just tried, and he was like, kapow, and they tried, and he's like, kapow, and he's tried, and he's like, kapow, and they're like, oh, man, maybe we are in over our heads. They should have realized that quite a few years earlier, um, but anyways. The Pharisees, right, let's so talk about it real quick. We kind of set a little bit of a context for this. The Pharisees were a large party, uh, was a large group of religious leaders. But here the Sadducees come. Now I don't have time to, to go into all the distinctions between the two, and nor would I probably know all the distinctions between the two. But the Sadducees, it's the only time they're mentioned in the Luca Gospel. They were a very small party of religious leaders, and they were known or marked by their unbelief or for what they did not believe in. So, for example, they didn't believe in angels. Uh, they also did not believe in what's pertinent to this passage. They did not believe in life after death. They didn't believe in the resurrection. That's what he means by the resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. Another thing is they only accepted the Pentateuch, or the first five books, or the books of Moses, just as Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the only books that they accepted. They didn't accept any of the historical, any of the prophetic books, uh, any of the wisdom literature, just the first five books. Books, this is crucial for when you see where Christ goes and where he appeals to to prove them wrong. The issue presented is this. They say, by implication, there cannot be any resurrection because of the law and the marriage deal. So implication. So what they're saying is that the law doesn't say that there's no resurrection explicitly, but by implication... We can only be married to one person. Like that was, that was law, right? So what happens in the resurrection, what happens to these... Let me back up. Because in the law, there's this uh, law, if you will, well, I guess in the law would be a law, um, that if the husband dies, that the spouse has to then marry into the... I'm sorry, the brother marries to the widow. There we go. Everybody following with me? All right. I'm trying to draw this in my head, right? So, so what happens if, if he dies, then the next one's supposed to take care of the next one. So when she gets to heaven, we're only supposed to have one spouse. So what's going on? Are they all seven be married to her? So if they, they can't all seven be married because that would be against the law as well. So um, there must not be any resurrection. So Jesus, tell us. There must not be a resurrection. Jesus says, no, uh-uh. Jesus divides their hope and the future, because I think what was ultimately happening here is they were hopeful for no resurrection so that they might live life here on earth without any eternal consequences. If there's no resurrection, 
then what we're doing here is ultimately all that matters. I think it sounds like many people today. But instead, Jesus shows the Sadducees right in the middle of the very books they believe that indeed there is a future resurrection. So Jesus doesn't appeal to Isaiah or any of the wisdom literature. He goes right to the middle of the first five books. Matter of fact, he goes to the law. He goes to, uh, not sorry, not the law. He goes to Moses, the one who would then bring the law from God. So he goes to Moses, chapter 3, verse 6 of Exodus, and he said, let me read this to you. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So what's happening, this is the story of the burning bush, and Jesus, or Jesus, rather, Moses is speaking to God, and God says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, if, Jesus, if God is the God of something, it's got to be living is what Christ is saying. So if God, of these guys, God, just, just in case you don't know what, what, what's referring to here earlier in the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all physically dead. But God is not the God of something that is dead. He's the God of something that is living. And so if he's the God of Jacob, if God himself is saying, I'm the God of Jacob, God of Abraham, God of uh, Isaac, then they must still be living. Then Jesus says in verse 38 of chapter Luke, And he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. So if these people had already had died already, and there had not been a resurrection, then how could God be God of them? But instead, so Christ is saying, though there is hope in the future, there is a resurrection coming. And he's saying, you guys have no hope in this, but there is something coming. There's hope, for example, for judgment of all the evil in this world. There's also hope for restoration of all that remains broken. Guys, with, we don't have time to go into this this morning, but Paul would encourage us to live our life as having hope in the future. Yeah, guys, Paul would tell us that if there is no hope in the resurrection, then we are to be pitied most among all men. But there is hope in a future resurrection, and Christ goes right to the heart of that which they claim they believe in to show them that they're wrong. So my question, Christian, do you live your life with hope merely in living a moral and satisfying life in this world? Or do you live your life with hope in the future eternal kingdom of God? Is that on your mind regularly that Christ will return? Next, Jesus divides over himself. And we are almost done. Two more points. Jesus divides over himself. Now, it's Jesus that asks the question. Right? So we're going to kind of change gears. Christ has been asked, getting asked all these questions. Now Christ is going to ask the question. Verse 41. But he said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? All right, so it's a little, I think, maybe a little confusing. But the Pharisees, 
Think about the Pharisees right now. They've got to be feeling really good. I mean, Jesus just sided with the Pharisees about the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Sadducees did not. And Jesus just said, look, there's a resurrection. So I'm sure the Pharisees are sitting there going, awesome. Yeah, Jesus is kind of on our team. And then he looks at them and asks them this question. Jesus is quoting here from Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. And Jesus asks them this question. Whose son do you think the Messiah was? Now we know if you go look at Matthew's account, he asks them this question, whose son do you think the Messiah was? And they said, the son of David. Well, that's true. Jesus is the son of David. I would encourage you to go look at Matthew's account later. But the issue here was the divinity of Christ. That's what Christ was kind of pressing into. And you'll have to, again, you'll have to go look this up later, but the Pharisees knew that Jesus was from God, and yet they despised that. This is what Jesus is pressing here. He's pressing His divinity, that He's not merely a prophet, that He's, he's divine. So He says, yes, the, son, the Messiah is the Son of David, but listen to what David says. So Jesus, Christ is the Son of David, but listen to what David says. Jesus quotes Him, For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So who is the Lord in that, pa- in that passage? That's God. Right? Who is the Lord speaking to? He's speaking to my Lord. Right? So David is saying, the Lord spoke to my Lord. But who would David call my Lord? I mean, David's the king. Who would he call my Lord except for the Lord? But here's, there's, there's a distinction between the Lord, as in God, and my Lord. My Lord is, again, distinguished from the Lord. Yet, David would only call someone my Lord if it was God. I think Jesus here is pushing them to realize that David is speaking to the one he recognizes as greater than himself. If he's the king, he's only going to refer to someone that is greater than himself, which would only be God at this point. He's saying, my Lord. Jesus is implying here that the son of David, the Messiah, will be more than just human, but he will be divine. This is all the way back in Psalm that David recognizes that this son that will come, that he will be God. He will be divine. Jesus was saying, in effect, guys, he was saying to the Pharisees at this point, here I am, the divine. I'm God. Yes, I'm human, but I'm God. I'm not just a mere man. The Christians, that's his question, is there division around you over who Jesus is. Last thing is Jesus divides over hypocrisy. Jesus divides over hypocrisy. Let's read 45 through 47. This is the last part of the passage. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces 
and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. So, just to catch us up here, Christ has been dividing over a number of things. And He just answered, where is this authority that comes from? It comes from God because I'm divine. So He answers their question. And then now He kind of takes the dagger, if you will, and just kind of goes... Let me speak on this for just a few more moments. Jesus says. I think what's going on here is Jesus was simply sharing what God thought about the scribes and the teachers of the law. Jesus was saying, this is what God thinks of you. Jesus is making the point that they do this for show. They do this because it's about their kingdom. The reason they're doing this is to impress other people. I mean, that's what we see as a thread even in this very chapter. Why did they want to answer the question a certain way? Because of the people. Because they needed the people to be the underlings in their kingdom. So it mattered what the people thought. So they had to kind of strut around with with this self-righteousness in order for the people to continue propping them up as their leaders. They were doing this to impress them. Jesus is just calling it out. He's saying, this is what you're doing. Now while they were doing this, the reality is that they were stealing from the poor, that they were devouring the widows' houses. Why? So that they could support their own gain. But who have we seen that Christ cares about, that God cares about throughout all of Luke? He cares about the poor, the widow. He didn't come to get, He came to give. He didn't come to be served, He came to serve. But what is He saying is going on with with the Pharisees here? That you go after them so that you can be served. So that you would look good in front of them. They were all about having their best life now. The best seats at the banquet. The best seats in the synagogues. They had titles. They were fond of walking around in grand clothes to show who they were. They were proud men. Not of what they were, but what they got others to think that they were. These were the people who were supposed to be teachers of God's word. And Jesus says, you walk around devouring widows' houses so that you can prop up your kingdom. Let me give you an example from a modern teacher of something very, very similar. Supposed Reverend T.D. Jakes said this, Remember, no need is too big for God. Maybe you need a miracle in your marriage. God can put it back together again. It's true. You could be facing unbelievable finance, financial challenges. God can provide a supernatural increase. God knows where you need your miracle harvest, and now is the time to sow your miracle faith seed. Even if you've already shared a gift... You still have time to increase your blessing during this miracle season of sowing. He says this, take a moment to do two things. First, write your most urgent prayer question on the reply and send it to me so that I can join you in praying. Second, take a moment to sow the most generous miracle faith seed you can. Ultimately, What he's proposing here is that the giving here is so that the receiving 
can happen. You give so that you can get. You increase your giving so that you can get. And this is what Jesus is saying, is that the religious leaders did what they did so that they could get. They just walked around like they're on this self-religious, prideful stuff that, so that they could get. I think Jesus is, the very thing Jesus is talking about, T.D. Jakes is proposing here. Devouring widows' houses so that so we can get. It's all about having our best life now. That's the, what the Pharisees wanted. It was their kingdom. And I would ask us this question in application, and this is not the only application, but if we live our life more concerned about our outward reputation than our inward holiness, then we are living our best life now. And that's all we have. So my question, Christian, how does your religion show itself? How does your religion show itself? You say, well, I don't have a long golden robe, so I must be good to go, right? How does your religion show itself? Is it a long robe? Is it pronounced religiosity? Is it more of a moral thing? Is it maybe more focused on Christ? Would you like to be known as someone who is more religious than other people? How does your religion show itself? Something else I want to point out to us is that notice the importance of discerning who you are taught by. Notice the importance. I think many of us can look back and go, Man, I went to that church, and if I had known, maybe that wouldn't have been the place that I would have chosen to go. Maybe there's false teaching, or maybe, maybe it wasn't you know, quite where it should be. You know, maybe it was just completely heretical. But notice the importance, and I want to encourage you to pray that God would help you to discern such things. That God would help you to discern and to measure what's being taught with God's Word. You guys understand, hypocrites will say true things, but then they will twist stuff to propel their agenda. That's what a hypocrite does. That's what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees say true things, but then they twist things to propel what they want. And guys, remember that whether a false teacher does it knowingly or not does not excuse their false teaching. Jesus does not go, oh, you Pharisees, you know, I, don't, I know you don't realize what you're saying is terribly stupid and sending people to hell, but, you know, no, he's saying it's wrong. Stop doing it. You're evil. And what's he say there at the end? He says that there will be a greater condemnation for you. And so that's an encouragement to us to say we need to be responsible and take responsibility for what we're being taught. And I want to encourage you guys, when, when, when I teach, when Rusty teaches, any teaching that goes on in this church, and Rusty and I take this very seriously, that you would measure it with God's Word. That you would go back. That you would study the Word yourself. Guys, I, I don't think you can be faithful to that task of ensuring proper teaching coming from this stand 
if you just take what is said on Sunday morning and go home as if it's the written word of God. That's why we encourage you to take notes, to go home, study it, to come to house gathering and go over it again, to work on application, answer any questions. And take those notes back and study them some more. And, and guys, it's not studying going, okay, I'm trying to find where Matt messed up, you know, because you'll find lots of those, I guarantee it, probably on a weekly basis. But it's to go, is he speaking the gospel? Is he teaching from the word of God? Now guys, I, I don't have time to go into this today, but I think there's a very real sense in which the church is accountable to God for what is taught in this church. Maybe some other day we'll talk about that, but at this point, understand that we each bear the responsibility to ensure gospel teaching is going on around us for other people and into our own lives. So Jesus divides. Christ divides. He divides between those whose religion is about God and those whose religion is ultimately about themselves. Jesus divides between those whose religion is about God and religion is about their own agenda. Jesus divides over hypocrisy. Now, I think there's two dangers for us to keep in mind as we come to a close. Some of us like to wear our religion like a gold robe. Everything is super spiritual. Or we live in a con condemning spirit of others. So we walk around like we have got this together. I think that's one danger. The other danger is some of us think Jesus came to bring peace as we, would like to, as we would like to define it, and therefore none of our co-workers see us as any different than Oprah Winfrey, Dr. Phil, or Joe Olstein. So the danger, I think it's too dangerous for us to walk away and go, I'm more pious than you, I'm more religious than you, I'm better than you, and to take our spirituality and to take it like a like a rock and hit people. I think that's one danger. And we're just doing the same thing the Pharisees did. The other danger is to curl up like an ostrich with your head in the sand and nobody know any different. And both of them are going to lead people to hell. So as we think about Christmas, we think about the wisdom. So that doesn't, I just don't want you to walk away going, well, Jesus, like, you know, beat the people with the word of God. No, no, no. Look who's, who's, who's he talking to. He's talking to the religious know-it-alls. So you know your, your lost co-worker that, um, that isn't touting around their religiosity? Like You don't need to go and start slapping them upside the head with the Bible. You need to show them the compassion. Remember what Christ did with the sinners and the tax collectors? What did he do? He had dinner with them. And the, the next words out of the Bible are not, and then he started beating them with the word of God. <laughs> he had dinner with them. He loved on them. He showed them compassion. He healed them. The religious leaders, on the other hand, the ones who were living by their self-righteousness, thinking they have it all together. He says, look, you're going to kill the Son of God. He's standing right before you. So let's be careful of those two dangers. Kind of a warning I would send to us. And then as we come upon Christmas, I want us to ask this question. What will we do with this Christ that we see? What will we do with it? What will we do with Him? Will you keep the meek and mild Jesus 
that happens to fit your agenda because you can bring him out of the manger when you want to and put him back into the manger? Or will you keep the biblical Christ who came to inaugurate the kingdom of our God by dividing and sifting through those who would submit to God as king and those who want to be their own king? Where do we stand? Where do you stand? Do you stand in a position by God's grace, wanting to submit your life to Him daily? Or in a position that says, I want to submit myself to my plan, to my agenda. So the question, when we think about this Christ in a manger, I want to paint Him as some, you know, gory, gruesome little baby in a manger, you know, and just and kind of ruin all of that. But I want you to see, guys, when that baby comes, He has a purpose. And it's not just to look cute. He comes with a purpose. And that purpose is not all the kindness, love, you know, coexisting, tie-dye life that we kind of want Christ to be. He comes with an agenda, and that agenda is from God. So the question is, what will you do with Christ this Christmas? Let me read you this quote in closing. Could God find, from Thomas Watson, says, could God find time to think of your salvation? Could Jesus Christ find time to come into the world and be here for 33 years and carrying on this great design of your redemption? And can you find no time to look after it? Is the getting a little money that which obstructs this violence for heaven? Your money will perish with you. Can you find time for your body, time to eat and sleep, and not find time for your soul? Can you find time to use for your recreation and no time to use for your salvation? Can you find time for idle visits and no time to visit the throne of grace? Oh, take heed that you go not to hell in the crowd of worldly business. Joshua was a commander of an army, yet his work as a soldier was not to hinder his work as a Christian. He must pray as well as fight and take the book of the law in his hand as well as the sword. You, whoever you are, who makes this objection about worldly business and busyness, let me ask you, do you think in your conscience that this will be a good excuse at the last day when God shall ask you, why did you not take pains for heaven? You shall say, Lord, I was so steeped in worldly business that I was hindered. Was it a good plea for a servant to say to his master that he was so drunk that he could not work? Truly, it is a poor excuse to say that you were so drunk with the cares of the world that you could not be violent for the kingdom. So, the question as we hit Christmas, what will we do with Christ? What are you doing with Him today? Are you living in His grace and abundance and then taking that to a world that needs it? Or are you living in your own self-righteousness and lack of grace and lack of mercy? What are you doing with Christ? Encourage us to live our life knowing, seeking Him. As, as Thomas Watson says, being violent for the kingdom. I'm not saying we need to go start up the crusades again, all right? I think he's talking about a spiritual violence in which we are fighting to know God with a fervor, with a persistence, with discipline, to know Him without excuse, to know, love, cherish our God. I want to pray for us, and we'll be dismissed.
Father, um, thank you for this time, Father. I pray that, um, that as we look towards Christmas, that we would look towards Christmas with a heart that is open to knowing you and your word, to not being limited to our own lack of understanding, but Father, a, a heart and mind that is desiring to, to know you more and to know you accurately. So Father, I pray that uh, you would grace us with that opportunity and that fervor. And Father, um, let's thank you. I love you. Thank you for sending your son for us. Thank you for sending him to rescue us from our sinfulness. And Father, let us not leave in despair over our sin, but leave in hope of your work in our lives. Father, if there's anyone here that has not experienced the redeeming work of your Son, let them seek that out today. And uh, Father, I, I, I just thank you for drawing our hearts to you each day. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a wonderful day. And uh, let's enjoy Christmas this year.